She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. Millennium, season one. Episode one, pilot. This episode was written by Chris Carter and directed by David Nutter. They might sound familiar. It was filmed on location in British Columbia, Canada, and originally aired on Friday, October 25th, 1996 at 9 p.m. Also very familiar sounding. It was preceded by a repeat of the X-Files episode War of the Copperphages at 8 p.m. What's all this? They sound familiar stuff. I mean, that's when X-Files always airs. Tori, what are you talking about? Oh, um, did we not mention this is not the X-Files? What? Yeah. So Chris Carter had another show that he started in 1996 called Millennium. And that is what we're talking about today. But it's in the X-Files time slot. I know. I know. They stole the X-Files precious Friday night time slot. And yeah, we're going to talk about that later. I remember not being super happy about that in 1996. Okay. All right. But before getting into the episode and our discussion of it, we should do a little explainer. If you're listening to this on the standard I Want to Rewatch feed, we need to let you know that the 66 episodes of Millennium after this one and the season wrap-ups will only be available on our Patreon at the $5 and up tier, beginning this Monday with episode two and followed by a new episode every Millennium Monday until the series or the world ends, whichever comes first. Yeah. Rooting for the series, but, (laughs) you know. Millennium Monday. That's a good name. I like that. (laughs) I wonder who came up with that. I don't know. (laughs) Patreon support at the $5 and up level also unlocks our X-Files adjacent archive of Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? And Cole Check the Night Stalker episodes, as well as an expanding series of discussions about alien contact movies spanning four decades, including the UFO incident, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Fire in the Sky. We have almost 60 hours of Patreon content available right now, and supporters of the $5 tier have immediate access to it and receive two new bonus episodes per week, every week. That's a pretty sweet deal. Yeah. And if you're listening to this on our Patreon feed, you already know all about the awesomeness, and we thank you so much for your support. Sorry for the sort of duplicate episode in both feeds. But we did make sure that you're still going to get two other bonus episodes this week because we're cool like that. Also, you're going to be spared the rest of this section. So thanks. Enjoy the episode. In this episode, Frank Black, a newly retired FBI profiler, moves his family back to Seattle to try and distance himself from his former work. However, it's not long before Frank is working with the secretive Millennium Group to stop a killer who believes their brutal crimes are part of the prophecies to prevent the coming apocalypse. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Very intense. Apocalypse with a title like Millennium. That seems weird. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> in a show airing in 1996 on the cusp of the millennium. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. So we were in downtown Seattle on Groundhog Day, February 2nd, yeah. 1996. We're probably going to be here again and again and again. Anyway, inside a bar slash strip club called the Ruby Tip, a young woman leaves after her shift and another woman arrives and the woman arriving is calamity, a dancer who then calls her babysitter and tells an arriving dancer 
Tuesday that the weird French guy is back. Tuesday enters a room to dance where customers pay to open windows and watch. The weird French guy holds up a message written in Francais to the window. And she walks up and starts to, like, remove her bra. But then the window closes. So apparently he's not interested in Tuesday, it seems. Later, Sammy, a guy who works there, tells Calamity that she has a request for a private dance. And she's like, I'm off. So obviously some time has passed. I don't know how long their shifts are, but she's off work now. But he tells her that it's $200 for 10 minutes. So she agrees. So she's dancing in the private room and asking the customer, the Frenchman, what he wants. And he says he wants to see her dance on the blood dim tide. And as she moves, he sees the walls behind her bleeding and he keeps talking, but it doesn't seem that she can hear him possibly. She does keep asking him like, what do you want? That kind of thing. But then he says that this is the second death and she'll have her part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. And then we keep cutting between him talking and seeing her and like there's fire behind her and she's got blood coming down her head and this all kinds of stuff. And then we see a tear run down his cheek because he's sad. She's on fire and bleeding. And then it's opening credits. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of assume Calamity couldn't hear him because he's saying a bunch of weird stuff and she doesn't react. And like later when they're in a booth Tuesday can hear Frank. So I don't know. I don't know if she can hear him or not. It's kind of unclear. Maybe she's just a really consummate professional who's really good at ignoring nonsense. Yeah. Well, that then there's music. Her. He's kind of whispering. And she keep, she does it's keep true. asking him, like, what do you want? Tell me what you want. So, yeah, I don't know if she can hear him or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, my media knowledge of peep shows and the like is that performers usually aren't able to see or hear patrons because I mean, you can probably guess why you would not want to hear and see them anyway common sense would also tell me that's accurate in real life but i don't know i honestly cannot verify that i've never actually been to a peep show but i imagine the degree to which that would be true probably does vary whether intentionally or not whether you can see or hear people and also Mm -hmm. tv yeah 100 yeah so the main titles for millennium obviously are different than the main titles for x-files right and so first thing we start off with is a super sweet cool logo that says millennium Mm -hmm. and i'm gonna go out on a limb and say that i could definitely see where this might have influenced the logo of supernatural i don't know yeah but just because the circle and everything it just seems that Mm -hmm. way and we get a lot of little short cuts they kind of jump back and forth between like a warmer color and a cooler color it's like a hot orange red yellow color and then like cooler like blues and greens kind of thing we get a creepy time shift of a woman silhouetted by the sky where she's like all looking young and then looks like a zombie honestly scares the crap out of me anyway then we see like an arm grasping at a locked shed or something like maybe trying to get out and then a city at night walking in the rain and then we something that looks like sexy times going on and then (laughs) we see some open windows like blowing in the wind the curtains are all blowing and we get the word wait on the screen and then like someone like there's an alley fire like people keeping warm like you know burning garbage in a can kind of thing and then we cut to a bedroom and there's someone like laying in the bed and we see the word worry and then we see this woman praying or chanting possibly and then we see our main characters we get starring lance henriksen and then we see our other main character and it says megan gallagher and then we see a woman walking precariously along the roof of a house And it says created by Chris Carter. And then we see this yellow house and there's clouds moving behind it. And it says, who cares? So 
Yeah. Uh, insert joke. I'm sure my brothers and I made when this first aired about how no one cares. Why are we watching this? Yeah, especially because it interrupted your X Files episode. Well, I so. mean, that's why we were mad, right? Like, not because yeah. it's bad, but like, just and I'll talk at the end about that. But like, yeah, it's such a weird like. Who cares? It's like okay, I guess yeah, I don't. Ser- I'll turn it seriously, off. It's like what the fuck were you thinking? Like, why would you? Why would you ever put that on something like anything you created? <laughs> why would so you ever weird. write like who cares? Because people are gonna be like, I don't. So, yeah, I, I get what they're going for, because it's like, who cares about the people who are whatever dying and lost and murdered? Right. And, you know, but it just it's such a weird, especially because you're used to seeing like the truth is out there and you're like, what? yeah, yeah. Very much like you have stuff to say later. I actually have a lot more to say about the sequence, but I'm actually going to save it for the next episode because there are some changes from this episode version to next episode version. And it puts some of my comments and questions more into context. So okay, we'll just go with that. Okay. So now that we're back from the opening titles and probably a commercial, we see Frank Black and he's driving with his wife, Catherine, and his daughter, Jordan. And Catherine has her eyes covered and he's like, okay, don't look, don't look. And like, you know, the kid is like kind of in on it. And so she's like, they're all excited and they pull up to a house. And he tells Catherine she can look and she exclaims like you had it painted. So he had this house painted and she smiles and she looks really happy. And Jordan is like, is this our new house? And Frank says it is. And it's like this nice yellow bungalow, very Pacific Northwest. And inside, it's, it's very big. It's, it's I would two guess, story plus an attic, if not a full floor. Yeah, I would guess the attic isn't finished. Um, I would guess this is probably 1,900 to 2,000 square feet, but it might be 1,600. It's a this pretty is an good easy million house. dollar house right now if this was. Important. Oh, if this is in downtown Seattle, like 1.2 probably. Yeah. And then inside the house, Catherine asks him to come upstairs to see something and she kisses him. And she tells him she's just really happy right now. And Frank is too. He says it feels like home. Oh, yeah. So later he goes out to get the newspaper and he meets Jack Meredith, who's his new neighbor. And Jack is like making small talk. And he's like, where are you from? And Frank tells him that they lived in Washington, D.C. for the past 10 years. But both he and his wife are actually originally from Seattle. And Jack asks about his job. And Frank is just like, yeah, I do some consulting. And Jack asks if he can invite them over for dinner later this week. And Frank's like, I'll talk to my wife. And then Frank opens the paper and he sees an article that reads, mother found murdered in her home, five-year-old daughter hid from Slayer. And we see in the photo that the victim is Calamity, the dancer from the cold open. Yeah. Maybe I'm just like super antisocial, but (laughs) the neighbor is a creeper. He's like, where are you from? Why'd you come back? What do you do for a living? When can we invite you to dinner? I see you have a little girl. Like, dude, like step back. Like, seriously, like you just need to calm down. (laughs) Especially like, oh, we see you have a little girl. That is creep. E, I'm sorry. I mean, I think he's just trying to make small talk and be neighborly and nice, but like it is a little, he is asking a lot of questions instead of just like, oh, I see you just moved in. Where'd you move from? You know, like basic and then just kind of leaving it at that instead yeah. of like interrogating him. Just that little, when can we invite you for dinner? I see you have a little girl. That's just like, ooh, creeper, <laughs> creeper, 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 creeper. Do not let him anywhere near your daughter, dude. No way. Sorry. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, this is the point where, like, we're getting to learn Frank's backstory, so they have to do it somehow. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's exposition. But, yeah. Yeah. Still, creeper. Creeper. And Frank Black is played by Lance Henriksen, as we said earlier. He has a very long career as an actor. 
He'll actually appear as Frank Black in one episode of The X-Files in season seven. Ooh, crossover. Yeah. And he's been in many movies and television shows, including Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Mm-hmm. And he's done a lot of voice work as well. So he's done a lot. Yeah. Reportedly, Chris Carter wrote the character of Frank Black with Henriksen in mind. Nice. He had done some television, but he was mainly like, as far as like larger roles, he was mainly a film dude. Yeah. He hadn't really done a lot of television work. So like, you know, starring in a series was a was a big shift. Mm-hmm. And again, from the opening titles, Catherine is played by Megan Gallagher, who also had recurring roles on 24 and Suits. She's also been on Star Trek Voyager and Boston Legal, among other things. Yeah. Please tell me that Suits is not a lawyer version knockoff of Scrub. It might be. It was on USA and I didn't ever really watch it, but I know it was on USA because like it was on. I mean, it actually, after I asked that question rhetorically, I then looked it up and it basically is. So yeah, yeah. That it's makes not sense. for the same creators. She was in Boston Legal too, which Boston Legal sounds like the exact same show. So yeah, which Boston Legal, my brother Andrew really loved that show. And so I've seen a little bit of it. I haven't seen a ton of it. All I remember is I think like William Shatner is in it or something. Oh, and it stars okay. James Spader. Okay. So, yeah. yeah it's pretty good. I mean, from all intents and purposes, it looks like Suits was literally a knockoff of Scrubs because like it's not the same creator, not the same network. So yeah, but yeah, it was USA. It was around, I know it like was still airing around like the later seasons of like monk and psych and those kinds of shows and so yeah they have a very nice use of music and transition at the end of this scene going into the next one like when he sees because it's all like it's sunny and like everything's nice they're in their yellow house and he looks at the paper and he sees that story and then he kind of looks off and like the music shifts and then like it goes into like dark gray rainy seattle for our next scene it's pretty sweet mm-hmm. they did a really good job on that transition i like it a lot nice so we are at seattle public safety building and frank knocks on a door to an office where several men are talking and the guy behind the desk says oh my god i think i see a ghost and he smiles and frank is like hey bletch and then frank tells him that he and his wife just moved back to seattle they missed the weather and then bob bletcher introduces him to the other men saying he used to work homicide here before he became a big star at the fbi and then another detective gibblehouse says frank is the one who caught the serial killer who ate his victims Piggot. And Frank's confirms like Leon Cole Piggott. And then Gibble House is like, how did he prepare his victims? And Frank says, in a skillet with potatoes and onions. And then Frank asks Bletcher if he has a minute. So they -hmm. walk through the open areas of the station. And Bletcher tells Frank the homicide rate is at a record low. And Frank asks about the mother that he read about in the paper. Bletcher tells him that she was a stripper who worked at a peep show. Someone obviously wanted more than a peep. And then Frank asks how the little girl is. And Bletcher says that she's with social services. And then Frank asks if she witnessed a murder. And Bletcher tells him she didn't. And then asks if Frank is there looking for work. And Frank says sexual homicide is what he did for 10 years. And Bletcher says he heard that had pushed him in early retirement. Frank asks if he can see the body. Hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. They also did, I have to say, they did a really good job occasionally when we do x-files episodes talked about like when they're looking at newspapers or whatever like i'll look at the surrounding text and see what's going on you know the stuff we're not supposed to look at they did a really excellent job on the newspaper with her story like the story under it like reads like a real story like they wrote like an entire like newspaper story about her murder and then there's like stories around it that don't seem like just weird made-up stuff so actually really good nice 
because you, if you actually stop it and read it, you learn all about the fact that her daughter's with social services and they're waiting to place her like with foster care and all this kind of <laughs> stuff. So it's kind of it's, they did a really good job. It was nice. Oh, nice. So, yeah. Cool. So down in the morgue, a coroner tells them that Calamity went down fighting. They don't know her name yet. I'm calling her Calamity because we know her name. But yeah. Well, we learned her real name also, which I don't think we use in the summary. But we're just going to call her Calamity for the sake of conciseness. Yeah, so. just so that for clarity, so we're not just switching around. Yeah. Based on the abrasions, she was a strong woman. Unfortunately, the killer was no weakling either. And the coroner starts to open the body bag, but Frank stops him. And then Frank has like, I want to say a vision. It's not quite a vision, but he he sees the woman screaming, her hands up, her face bloody, and then he sees her dead. So he gets like all these flashes. And Frank says the killer severed her head. And Bletcher in the corner kind of looks surprised. And the coroner's like, yeah, it wasn't an easy task. And Frank asks about the position the body was found in. And the coroner says she was on her back, arms crossed over her chest, which Frank sees as a vision as it's described. And then Frank says they didn't find the murder weapon, but it was something the killer took from the crime scene. And Bletcher confirms that a carving knife was missing from the kitchen. Frank says the victim was clothed and there was no evidence of sexual assault. And the killer cut off her fingers. And then Frank asked what hair and fiber turned up. And Bletcher says, maybe you should tell me. And then he adds that two head hairs from the head of a black male. And Frank walks away and the coroner just kind of looks at Bletcher and he's like, how did he do that? And Bletcher's like, he's a lucky guesser. Yeah. The coroner is played by Michael Putin. He's been in the X-Files, most recently in season three, episode 10, 731, where we discussed him a bit. So we kind of talked about things he's been in in that episode. He will appear as the same coroner, whose name is pathologist Kurt Massey, in episode four of Millennium. Mm-hmm. So we'll get to see him in a couple of episodes as well. Nice. So Bletcher chases Frank into the stairwell and asks him what he's doing here. And Frank says he's seen this MO before. He knows the patterns and profile. The person will kill again. Bletcher guesses that the victim was a working girl, thus a target. But Frank says that's not why she was chosen. Frank doesn't know why she was chosen yet, but he's working with a consultant group who have a lot of experience with this sort of thing. They could take a look. Bletcher says that he has three detectives assigned to this case. What's he supposed to tell them? And Frank suggests he tells them that this guy is going to be hard to catch and they could use some help. Yeah. And I know we're supposed to think Frank is like getting into the mind of the killer, kind of like Will Graham, right? Like that's kind mm-hmm. of his thing is he, this is my design. You know, he can see what the killer is doing, but I feel like there's definitely something a little supernatural happening with the visions. Like, am I wrong? I feel like there kind of has to be like, you can't just look at a body bag and profile a killer. Yeah. I don't know. It seems that way. Like he's getting some sort of, whether it's, you know, like psychomancy or whatever's going on, like you see things or whatever. According to Chris Carter, that is not supposed to be the case at all. And yet this first introduction of what he can do, we're like, Ooh, he's not even. Yeah. Yeah, It definitely seems a little supernatural psychic detective type dealio, which I realize is not. Yeah. Yeah. Not the intention, but that's kind of the impression that I get. Yeah. So Bletcher is played by Bill Smitrovich, who is super familiar looking. And there's a reason why. Speaking of Will Graham, he played Lloyd Bowman in Manhunter from 1986. Nice. So there we go. Right. He was also in Crime Story from 1986, 1988 in 40 episodes where he played Sergeant slash Detective Danny 
Krychek. <gasps> Krychek. Krychek. Yeah, that where I saw that. That's where I, re- I recognize him probably from Crime Story. That's probably where I recognize him from, for sure, because I watched that a lot. Those were both Michael Mann. Michael Mann did Manhunter, and then he did Crime Story, because Dennis Freena is actually in both of those as well. So okay. when I saw that he played Danny Krychek, I was like, Krychek? What? Because <laughs> we were thinking that maybe Krychek was a play on Kolchek, but now I'm wondering... If Chris Carter was also a fan of crime stories, probably, knows? probably. Yeah. So I'm, I imagine getting this guy in the series was probably a big for Chris Carter with the man yeah. crime story thing. He was also he played the dad in Life Goes On from 1989 to 1993. It was in 83 episodes of that. That's also might be where because I didn't know I didn't watch that show. That show was like everywhere. So you probably just saw his face and he's still working today. Like he's got nice. like credits right up to like right now. So, yeah. Yeah, he's super familiar looking when you see him. And then Stephen E. Miller plays Detective Roger Cam here. He's one of the guys in the room, and then we'll see him a couple more times in the episode. Although I don't think he's actually ever named in the episode, but that is his name when you look up the credits. So he was in the pilot of The X-Files. He was in Dwayne Barry, season two, episode five. And then most recently in Piper Maru, season three episode 15 where we discussed him a lot there also. yeah we talked about this how he comes in as this character and then will return later yeah and he's going to return in season three as a different character that actually has 11 appearances in millennium so this nice. is the last time we see him as this character and then he's gonna duck out for like two seasons and then come back in season three so, <laughs> yeah So Frank goes to the ruby tip and he enters a private booth and the woman Tuesday starts her routine and is like, you know, doing her dance and her sexy moves. And he tells her he just wants to talk and he holds up an article about calamity's murder. So she folds her arms and she tells him that this is not an interrogation booth. She's already given her statement and he says that he's not a cop, but he might be able to figure out who killed her. So Tuesday tells him that Calamity didn't sell sex or do drugs. She danced for the money to raise her daughter. That's all. And Frank asks if anyone had a reason to kill her. And Tuesday's like, men don't need a reason, just an excuse. Which I thought was kind of a good line. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially for a show written by a dude. Yeah, exactly. That's a pretty good line. Yeah. Yeah. And then Frank has another vision. This time of Calamity dancing in front of the flames with blood running down her face and chest. And he thanks Tuesday for her time and he starts to leave. But then Tuesday tells him about the Frenchman and his poetry. He paid Calamity for a private. And Frank's like, oh, do they have a camera here? And so she kind of like surreptitiously nods at where the camera is. And she's like, but don't tell anyone I told you. (laughs) They don't want the clients to know that they have cameras watching them, right? Yeah. So... It's a secret. Calamity is played by April Tellick, and she will appear as a different character, obviously, in season three, episode 20 of Millennium. So she'll come back in season three. And then Tuesday is played by Kate Lubin. She will also come back in season three, episode five as a different character. She will also appear in season five, episode 11, Kill Switch of the X-Files, which strangely also appears in Millennium Season 3, Episode 8. You can hear Scully's dialogue from Killswitch playing on a TV behind a closed door 
in the Millennium episode. Huh. For the episode that this person is in. So it's kind of like weird and like very meta action going on here. Yeah. Especially since he's later going to appear in X-Files as Frank Black. So super meta because yeah, that is weird. X-Files. And then, yeah, that was kind of <laughs> weird. Yeah. So then we see the Frenchman and he pulls his car under a trestle in a sparsely wooded area outside the city. And there are several maybe shady things happening. It's kind of like a hookup place, basically. Mm-hmm. And he walks around. And a man approaches, and then the Frenchman sees the man with his eyes and mouth stone shut. And then he looks around, and all the men there look that way. One in particular approaches him. But then we cut to the Frenchman getting back into his car. And he leans his head against the steering wheel, and then we kind of see him sitting there. And then we see someone knock on his window, and then the person looks and then comes around to the passenger side, gets in the car, and they drive off. And then later... We see the Frenchman pulling under a very low bridge, like almost like no standing room under this bridge, pulls his car under there. And we see him drag a body out of the passenger side of the car. And he opens up the trunk, which is lined with black trash bags. And then he dumps the body inside and then it goes to commercial. Oh, creepy. This is, this never comes up in the episode, but. It is. It does kind of play a little bit of a role in an upcoming scene, and I don't know if this was intentional or not. But the person who actually like directly approaches him with the sewn eyes and mouth is a black male, and we have mentioned that they found the hair from a black male at the scene of Calamity's murder, and so I'm wondering mm. if that was like like maybe from that person. Like maybe he's seen people he's already killed, maybe or something. So I don't know. It never yeah. comes up. But I was like, I wasn't sure if that was just coincidence or not. But I was kind of putting pieces together. This is a very pegboard, red string kind of episode. <laughs> show, yeah, really, very much. To be so, yeah. Yeah. So Frank is lying in bed with Catherine and Jordan is sitting on the bed. It's morning. You know, they're kind of doing the morning, just hanging out in bed thing. And they're talking about breeds of dog. So, like, obviously thinking about maybe getting a dog. And the phone rings and it's Bletcher. They found a body, and he thinks Frank may want to come take a look. Oh, Yeah. So Frank arrives at a wooded area near a field where officers are processing the scene. And Bletcher's like, you know, I'm sorry. I may have called you out here a little hastily. The body was charred so badly that they couldn't tell the sex, but it's actually a male. The body's been decapitated, and whoever killed him did it somewhere else and then dumped it out here. And Frank walks around the area and then he, you know, does that little vision. I'm seeing what the killer did type thing. Mm-hmm. And he sees a man on fire walking around and screaming. And Frank tells Bletcher that it's the same killer. The victim was set on fire here in the woods. And then he's like, how far to the river? And Bletcher's like four miles. And Frank's like, that's where they came from. <gasps> so I guess he must have cut his head off after he burned him alive then. I guess so. A headless person can't run around screaming when they're on fire. So, I mean, not usually. Yeah. Well, and we see the person on fire has a head too. Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So the police canvass the river with the aid of a helicopter, and a group finds something in a pile of leaves. And so they like call out, like, hey, we found something. And Frank and Bletcher run over, and it's an old wooden coffin that has the word pest on the lid. It's P-E-S-T-E. It's French. And Frank's like, it's empty. 
So they open the coffin and sure enough, it's empty. Yeah, although it does have like blood and stuff in it. So yeah. I mean, there's no person inside, but yeah, there's some. No, there's like some blood residue. And what may or may not be like burned pieces of paper or little shreds of paper. I'm not sure. There's some other stuff in there, too. And then as we will learn later, and then Tori could tell us right now, because she is our French expert, that that word is French for plague or pestilence. So. Je ne parle pas le français. Whatever that means. I I don't speak French. (laughs) But you know enough. I know some. I know a little. Yeah. I mean, I, I I should speak French better than I do. I just my French is very bad. If we were like, dropped in France right now, I would have you a better would have chance. a much better time than I would. Yeah, I at least know basic way. words, and I could probably ask directions and like figure out. You know, I could order a coffee or something. I wouldn't be totally lost. Yeah, but. they'd be like flicking their teeth at me and calling me ugly American and all that kind of. I stuff. mean, they'd they would be, like, be very like. <laughs> They would probably be very polite. And then as soon as I left, they'd be like, wow, that American's French is terrible. But I would oh, yeah, be able they would to hate you for mispronouncing words because they are oh, I would all mis- about that. I w- yeah. Oh, I would mispronounce all over the place, but I would be able to get my point across where I would be actually, able to like. I have, I have actually die. heard that. Oh, I don't know if this is true because obviously it's easy to make fun of French people. But I have heard <laughs> that you will actually get more shit in France if you speak French badly than if you don't speak French at all. I don't know if that's true or not. But I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I mean, I've met a couple of French people and they've always been super polite and nice. And I don't think they're that judgy. That's true. (laughs) But I mean, who knows? You know, I mean, give think about how much shit Americans give people who come over here from another. Oh, yeah. I mean, we can't even speak our own language barely. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, we do the same thing. We're incredibly rude to people who speak in broken English. So, you know. Well, not all of us. I am not. Well, I mean, no, but I, mean, I think France is probably the same way. There's probably some people who are yeah. jerks about it and some people who are just like, oh, look, that's cute. She tried to speak French and she tried. Yeah. <laughs> she made an effort. She knows the word for cheese and she ordered a cheese. So, And it seems like that's what she wanted. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> she got what she wanted. She got her cheese. Un fromage, s'il vous plaît. There we go. Good. Got my cheese. Le du fromage. <laughs> No. Yeah, so you can order a cheese omelet. You can, <laughs> I can order a cheese omelet. I, I can like ask that. where the bathrooms the are. Only thing I can say. Okay. Yeah, I will tell all this. I'll put on some glasses and a red wig, and I'll just walk around France going, omelet du fromage. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> so oh. then we see Frank and Bletcher, and they're driving through the rain in Frank's red Jeep. He's got a Jeep Cherokee because it's the 90s. And Bletcher tells Frank that an associate of his, Watts, was down in the pathology lab looking at the body this morning. And some of the detectives spoke to Watts, who told them that the group he's part of calls himself the Millennium Group. And he's like, is that who you're consulting for? And Frank is like, yes, they're guys who used to work in law enforcement. And Bletcher asks if they were FBI, and Frank says some of them. And then Bletcher tells Frank that his guys want to know why he's here, and he doesn't know what to tell them. Frank says he wants his wife and kid to live somewhere where they feel safe. And he lets Bletcher out of the car. And then Butcher asks how he does it, and Frank says he's a lucky guesser. So. <laughs> and it is ass pouring rain in this scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. We don't have as many torrential downpours in the Seattle area as television would have you believe. It does rain a lot, but a lot of it is that misty kind of gentle rain. There's not a lot. of. I mean, we do get the occasional yeah, it, downpour. In this episode, it is either sunny common. or it is pouring rain like you have never seen before. Like just uh-huh. sheets. Yeah, it's- yeah. Yeah. So back home that evening, Frank is walking up to his house 
And then he hears a man call his name and he turns around and the man gets out of a car across the street, and introduces himself as Peter Watts from the group. And he hands Frank an envelope. And Frank says, if he found anything when he looked at the body. And Peter says that he found a few things that had slipped through the pathology report, including one salient oversight. And then Catherine calls to Frank from the door and Frank's like, I'll be right there. And then Peter tells him there was severe blunt trauma to the victim. So this was an easy miss, but there was a needle puncture in Calamity's left thigh. There was no evidence of anything administered in the surrounding tissue. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Peter also notes that the cops think the suspect is a black male, but Frank is like, I've already ruled that out. Peter says severing the head and removing the fingers were done with care. And Frank says he knows why. Frank says the killer was covering his tracks. He actually may not have entered intending to kill Calamity. The victim may have scratched or bitten him. And so that's why he had to get rid of the head and fingers, I guess, because they touched him. Peter says the kitchen knife was a convenient weapon, but the killer knew what he was doing as evidenced by his cleanups. Apparently he cleaned the place up really well. Frank asked what the group thinks. And Peter says that Frank was right. The killer is being compelled by an extraneous stressor and he's out of control. Frank asked if they think anything else. And Peter tells him they think he's the right man for the job. All of their resources will be available to him. And then he heads back to his car. And Peter Watts is played by Terry O'Quinn, mm-hmm. who you may remember from the season two, episode 12, episode of The X-Files, Aubrey. And we discussed his career pretty well in that episode. So you can yeah. listen to that episode. You, you may also that. know him just as John Locke from Lost, among other who things. Tori's cat is not named after. He is not. Locke is not named after the guy from Lost or the philosopher. No, or the philosopher. Yeah. <laughs> He's named after Locke Lamora from the Gentleman Bastard series by Scott Lynch. Which I think is exactly the same conversation we had in Aubrey. Probably. So, so if you've yeah. listened to Aubrey, sorry. Now you've <laughs> heard it again. Now you know where my cat got his name. The other one is named Dr. Horrible. That should be fairly obvious. Yeah. Billy. Yeah. Well, he goes by the doctor's alter ego, which is Billy. So <laughs> I'm a nerd. So inside, Frank finds Catherine lying on their bed. And she's like, who is that? And Frank tells her it was Peter Watts and he had information for him. And Catherine's like, you know, he sat outside for an hour. He could have just come to the door and she can handle Frank's position, but not the secrecy. He may think he's protecting her, but that makes it worse. He can't keep this stuff from spilling over and he can't keep the real world from seeping in. And he tells her that he wants her to make believe that he can. Yeah. So down at his desk in the basement, Frank opens the envelope that Peter gave him, and it contains some photos, a microtape, and some paper. So he watches the surveillance video from the ruby tip of the Frenchman watching Calamity dance, and he notes that the Frenchman is mouthing something. So he grabs a piece of paper, and he starts to try and transcribe it, and he gets like, blood dim tide, where the air and money of innocence is drowned. And then he looks up at the Polaroids of the body that show the needle mark and then flips through the ones that show the coffin that says pests on it. And then he moves a newspaper and something catches his attention. There's an article about the police cleaning up cruising areas. And on it is a photo of two detectives at an underpass. And the word pest is written on the underpass. So he sees that and matches the thing written on the coffin. Yeah. So that's an interesting connection. Mm hmm. Good thing you have that newspaper down there. Yeah. Yeah. 
So apparently in the newspaper, it told you where that location was. And Frank visits the underpass where the word pest is painted in yellow spray paint. And he walks around and it's nighttime now when he's there, obviously. And he also starts seeing the young men walking around with their lips and eyes stone shut, just as the Frenchman did. So he's getting those little flashes again. And people are like looking at him like weird because like totally staring at people because like their eyes and mouths are stone shut. And so they're like, Whoa. and then he sees this guy like with a baseball cap kind of looking down and he stops and the guy looks up at him. Frank looks at him and then the dude just like bolts for it. So Frank runs after him and they run down a forest path and through the trees. Chase time. Unfortunately, there's no cool 70s chase music like 70s pop. (laughs) Cool. And this moment where they look at each other and they seem to kind of recognize who the other one is completely reminded me of that scene in Clyde Bruckman when the puppet, like the killer guy comes in with the food and like he and Clyde look at each other and instantly like recognize who the other one is. So again, I'm getting like psychic vibes from Frank, right? Cause it's very similar. <laughs> yeah. So then we have chase, chase, chase. And the Frenchman climbs up on an overpass bridge and then runs onto the street of the bridge where there's like at least like four lanes, if not more than that of traffic. And he runs in front of cars and Frank is following and the cars are all causing car crashes and honking. And Frank's almost hit by a car and the Frenchman's almost hit by a car. And then, he kind of loses track of him. And then this driver's like, he jumped over the side. And so Frank runs over and looks and like, it is a big drop to the river underneath. And so if he jumped, whew, I'm not sure he's doing that. So Frank kind of like turns away and then we pan down and we see the Frenchman is hanging from some things under the bridge. <gasps> and then his commercial and Whoa. I'm like, just let go, Michael. Just let go. <laughs> Yay, I get that reference now. <laughs> I've seen the Lost Boys. <laughs> so then we see Frank standing in front of a group of police detectives. And the video of the Frenchman is on the screen behind him. He plays the tape and we hear the Frenchman say what Frank transcribed earlier. And Bletcher asks what it means. And Frank tells them that it's from a poem called The Second Coming by William Butler Gates. And the poem is about the apocalypse. Frank hits play and we hear the part about how he talks like this is the second death, that kind of thing, which another detective says is from the Bible. And on the tape, the Frenchman talks about fire and brimstone. And Frank stops it and he says that's from Revelations. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. and Bletcher's like he's preaching and Frank says he's prophesizing about a plague in a maritime city pest means plague it's from a poem slash prediction of Nostradamus yeah because we all know he was a paragon of legitimate psychic ability that was sarcastic Bletcher guesses Frank believes this man is fulfilling the prophecy And Frank quotes the prophecy about how the plague won't stop until death is avenged by the blood of a just man. And he guesses that Seattle is the maritime city and AIDS is the plague. Another detective is like, so the killer thinks he's righteous? And Frank says the killer is confused about his sexuality, feels shame about it, maybe from his mother. So he goes to peep shows hoping to feel something towards women. But all he feels is anger, and that fuels his psychosis. Yeah. 
And so I looked it up and I found <laughs> the Nostradamus quatrain that is oh, referenced joy. here. So Tori is going to read it in French for us. <laughs> oh, and then okay. I will give us an English translation. Uh, I apologize to all French speakers for my pronunciation because I know it's not going to be good. So it's century two, 53. And again, apologies to French speakers for my abysmal pronunciation. But is Le Grand Peste de City Miritim, Necessaire que mort ne soit venye, du iste sang par prise dame sans crime, de la grande dame par fente not rege. That is probably very butchered. Yay. I apologize. Bravo, bravo. Desole. So this is Century 2, Quatrain 53. The great plague of Maritime City will not cease until death is avenged. Righteous blood by taken damned without crime of the great lady by pretense not outraged. Yeah. So he organized all his predictions. They're all written in quatrains. So mm-hmm. four lines rhyming in French, obviously. They don't rhyme in English. And then he broke them all into centuries. Right. And so and they're not like in chronological order either. So like this because it says century one doesn't mean it's like century one, century two, whatever like that. So this is the 53rd quatrain in century two, if you're looking it up. So yes. I was, a, I was really, I don't know if I was into Nostradamus, but I remember watching the man who saw tomorrow from 1981 mm-hmm. hosted by Orson Welles talked all about it. I was into it a little bit. So yeah, we might need to watch that at one point. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I apologize for making you read French, but no, I'm just trying it's to help okay. you I just need, I need to work on my accent. Again, Duolingo never understands me because my accent is so bad. It's like, what are you saying? And I'm like, I don't know. I thought I was saying what I was supposed to say, but clearly I'm not saying it right. So um, I apologize to Michel Fromm, my French teacher, who really tried to get me to work on my accent for four years. And I feel like it used to be better, but I'm out of practice. I'm out yeah. of practice. And also I pasted this into the notes and just told Tori pretty much when you guys heard it so yeah so I was just like oh good yeah (laughs) yay French yeah so we are (laughs) back in the room where Frank has given his presentation and someone else asks if he's angry at women then why did he kill the John Doe in the forest and Frank says because he's confused his way of coping is fulfilling his prophecy and then Giebelhaus doesn't buy it and the others agree and Bletcher mentions the hairs from the black man and then Frank says there's only been one incident of a black male serial killer. So statistically, it's improbable. The hairs could have been picked up before the murder or they could have been planted there even like to throw people off. Right. And the detective argues they have limited resources. And if they chase the wrong suspect, they'll end up with more victims. They don't want to have to waste their time. And so Frank looks at Bletcher and Bletcher looks at Frank and then Bletcher agrees. And so Frank like boop, ejects his tape and he leaves saying he has to get home to his family. So mm-hmm. I love it when people make an argument for not doing something that can just as easily, if not even more so be applied to the very thing they're planning to do instead. Cause you could argue, make the same argument like, well, maybe you should listen to Frank. Cause if you follow in a black serial killer, you might be chasing the wrong man and putting all your resources in one basket. Shouldn't be doing that. So sadly, it's not just a TV thing. It happens in real life all the time. Yeah. I mean, I get resources are limited, but if you have a good, and I get that Frank is like, working a lot on hunch here but i don't feel like he's any i mean he's got some evidence to back him up and 
I don't feel like he has any less evidence than like a couple hairs. So well, and also if out. if they're watching that tape and the last person who saw her, uh-huh. obviously not a black guy, right? So yeah. Wouldn't you maybe want to like try and look for that guy? Cause he was the last person to see her, you know, seems weird, but who knows? Eh. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's like, not... It happens a lot, especially until it happens. Like I said, it doesn't just only happen in television, but television happens a lot where people are like, we can't do that. Especially in police drama stuff. Cause like we can't yeah. oh, yeah. all our resources here. Cause what if it's the wrong thing? And you're like, well, actually we know that it's actually what you're doing is the wrong thing. You should probably do the bad thing. Or maybe just split your resources a little. So that you don't. Yeah. to divert them all but like give yeah. us a couple, couple let scully and Mulder have a few people to search this section of the lake right i mean come on yeah come on so which he did so good job yeah, yeah he did yeah. yeah the sheriff and quagmire was not the worst so. yeah season three episode 22 people just so you know yeah. <laughs> so frank is pulling out of the parking garage when bletcher stops him he tells frank to tell him why he's wrong and why he should listen to him like, why are you so sure, Frank? And Frank doesn't answer. And Bletcher guesses that he, like, quote unquote, sees it or something. And Frank's like, it's complicated. But Bletcher presses and Frank says he sees what the killer sees. And Bletcher's like, what, like a psychic? And Frank says, no, he puts himself in the killer's head. He becomes the thing they fear most, he becomes the horror. It's his gift and his curse. That's why he retired. It's very very dramatic. It's my gift and my curse. And Bletcher tells him he should get out. He should get out of law enforcement. It's not good for him. And Frank says that he tried. And then he pulls his car away. Yep. And again, raining like crazy during this scene. Uh Uh-huh. No, it's like pouring. And we do get downpours. It's not something that doesn't happen. It's just not constant like that. Yeah. Also, Bletcher is kind of a badass because Frank is like driving out of the parking garage and like Bletcher just like steps in front of the Jeep and like puts his hand on the hood. And Frank is like, Rrr! so like, whoa, dude, like just step right out in front of him. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway. So at his house, Frank finds the front door ajar, <gasps> which is always terrifying, right? Yeah. So he calls for, yeah, I mean, I would not want to come home and find my door ajar. Plus, my cats would probably be out the window. Oh, gosh. Actually, yeah. when I was cat sitting one time, I did go up to the house and the door had been left ajar and the cats were just sitting on the front porch oh. and they were just kind of looking at me. And like they lived in this really wild area where they're like all these coyotes. And I was just like, all right, let's get back inside. And I, was, I had to make sure it was one of the teenage kids who wasn't like away with the parents had like come into the house and didn't realize they didn't close the door all the way. But yeah, oh. it was <laughs> terrifying i'm not going anywhere there's coyotes is some murderer in the house and then the cats are just hanging out on the porch i'm like thank god they didn't run somewhere it'd be awful <laughs> or there were yeah. coyotes in the house like eating the turkey <laughs> from thanksgiving i mean so, maybe you never know you never know his hounds never know. anyway frank goes inside and he calls for Catherine, and he goes upstairs and he looks in jordan's room and the room is empty and he looks around and no one's home. So he's getting freaked out. Doors open. Everyone's gone. It's weird. So he's like heading out the door and his neighbor flags him down. And he's like, hey, I was coming over to leave a note. Apparently your kid had a seizure. And so I was supposed to like tell you that she ran to the hospital. I'm always outside and just asking questions all the time because I'm a creeper <laughs> and really am interested in your little girl. So I'm glad I found out some stuff. Yeah. So here's a note. I don't think there that's the impression we're supposed to get, but yeah, he's definitely a nosy neighbor. And yeah. 
At the hospital, Frank finds Catherine in the hall, and she tells him that Jordan passed out and hit her head in the bathroom. They're running tests right now. Jordan is sedated, but she has a really high fever. In Jordan's room, Catherine says they think it's probably just a bad reaction to the flu, but a specialist is on the way. So they're, of course, worried, like their daughter is obviously having a bad reaction, you know, in the hospital. It's not a fun time. And later that night, we see Catherine and Frank are both sleeping in the hospital room and a nurse comes in and Frank watches her draw some blood. And as he watches, he realizes the killer is taking blood from his victims. (gasps) So he's not injecting them with anything, which is why they didn't find any trace of like anything injected. He's taking their blood. And he also suddenly thinks that means there are probably more bodies buried alive. So Catherine kind of looks at him. They have like this exchange and she tells him to go. It's okay. He can go do his work. And so he leaves. Yep. And it's commercial. Yeah. So we're not really getting the deaths when we do commercials with this show, which is strange. No, there are murders, but yeah. yeah. So we see a team of police and they're canvassing the wood with flashlights. It's dark outside. And someone radios Bletcher that they've searched a mile north down the river and nothing. And Bletcher tells Frank that maybe we should call this off. Like, come back when it's daylight. And Frank says they could be dead by then. And they just keep on going. And Frank walks right into the river. And Bletcher's like, dude, you're going to freeze. What are you doing? Frank just like, nope. Just like goes across the river. So Bletcher's like, oh, so he like hands people like his gun and stuff, takes it out of his pockets and follows Frank across the river. So across the river, Bletcher finds some loose leaves he's walking and he like finds some stuff and he kicks them off and there's another wooden coffin there and so they start clearing off and inside someone is making noise like "Mm." so the coffin lid is screwed shut so they manage to pry it off and we see the lid of the coffin says la grande dame and inside is a man with his mouth and eyes so shut (gasps) but he's still alive and he's making noise and crying out as you would and i think like his hands are stitched together or something something's going on with his hands they're like crossed over his chest and it seems like he can't separate them and there's like some weird stitching or something so his hands might be sewn together too i don't know anyway bletcher's like paramedics and they lift him out and like frank like you know holds the guy and the guy's all and then once he's out bletcher finds calamity's head in a plastic bag also inside the coffin ew oh god i mean talk about worst scenario like you've been you've Eyes and mouth have been sewn shut. You've been buried alive with the dead, like decapitated head of someone else. Ugh. I mean, if your eyes are sewn shut, you probably don't know. But yeah, still. but you're gonna Ugh. feel something down there, and that's yeah. gonna make it worse. Yeah, and it's already a pretty bad situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Frank tells him there may be others, and Bletcher calls the others, and they all just start running across the river, like boom, because now they know what's going on, right? So you know, so yeah, yeah. Whew. Man, that's intense. Yeah, it's pretty intense. So in Bletcher's office, he's on the phone and Frank is like sitting in the office in a chair and Gibblehouse hands him a cup of coffee and he tells him that they found two more coffins, but both were empty. And then Bletcher hangs up his call. He says that the victim they saved gave a description of the suspect. He's a white male, early 30s, wore a ball cap, and he was taking blood from the victim. Gibblehouse is like, okay, I'll get that on the air. And he leaves. So Frank tells Bletcher that the killer is passing judgment, probably testing the blood and punishing those who don't pass the test. Although 
<laughs> seems like he's probably punishing everybody if that's his system. But anyway. Yeah, if you're, I'm sewing your eyes and mouth shut until I find out whether your blood's good or not. That's yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like you're not being punished. He suggests they check with medical facilities that handle blood because he's running his blood test somewhere. And Bletcher says they'll get word out to the labs. And Frank says he needs to go call Catherine. So Bletcher pushes his phone towards him. And then he tells them that in 18 years, he's never seen anything as terrifying as he's seen tonight. And Frank's like, have you ever seen your kid lying in a bed in the ER? So I guess touche. And he picks up the phone and he dials and he gets a busy signal. And Bletcher's like, you know, out there in the woods, it made sense to me why you quit. Like what it does to you. And Frank says the cruelty, the unspeakable crimes, it all becomes numbing. And Bletcher's like, well, what was it then? And Frank tells him he was on a serial case in Minnesota. The killer's name was Ed Cuffle. He would choose a neighborhood and go up to a random door. If the door was unlocked, he'd consider it an invitation and go inside and kill anyone who was home. Lock your doors. Yeah, no kidding. He would take Polaroids of the victims and send them to the police. It took them months, but they caught him, and he's currently serving triple life sentences. A year later, Frank reached into his mailbox, and there was a letter addressed to Frank with no return address. Inside, there were Polaroids of Catherine at the supermarket, at the school, and the numbness became a paralyzing fear. And Bletcher's like, do you ever find out who sent them? And Frank didn't, but he couldn't leave the house. He couldn't let his daughter out of his sight. He was completely just lost in this like absolute just fear, like totally gripped by it. And then Frank was approached by a group of men who helped him understand the nature of his gift. And Bletcher's like the Millennium Group. And he asked if they really believe that stuff, Nostradamus and Revelations. And Frank says, They believe they can't just sit back and wait for a happy ending. Whoa. Yeah. I'll put a pin in this. Okay. (laughs) So then Bletcher leaves and Frank tries the call again and it's still busy. And then so he hangs up, but then as soon as he hangs up, the phone rings. And so he answers and is like, you know, take to Bletcher's office, just stepped out. And so someone's like, well, I got a call, something very urgent. Can you? take a message he's like sure let me get a pin and so it's the dude from like the lab and he says they tracked down the blood samples that bletcher was looking for they were sent to a lab that seattle pd uses downtown and they were sent through the same channel intra office (gasps) so frank hangs up and he calls after bletcher but bletcher's gone so it's like someone in the police department sent the blood to those labs so Mm -hmm. so frank goes down to the morgue and there's a man there and he asks where the pathologist is because not the guy he talked to before, but the man tells him pathologist isn't there. And he keeps like turned away from Frank the whole time. So Frank is kind of suspicious and walks closer. And then suddenly he gets all these visions. And then we find out that the guy that you standing right in front of, like kind of looks up and it's the Frenchman. And he <sighs> turns around and he sees Frank looking at him and he grabs a knife and he's like, who are you to condemn me? They were guilty. And Frank shoves a gurney into him. But the Frenchman pushes the gurney over into Frank and knocks Frank down. And he stands over Frank yelling, this is prophecy. This is the way it ends. You can see it too, just like I do. And he tries to stab Frank, 
But because like when the gurney got pushed on Frank, it like fell over and there was a dead body on the gurney. And so Frank uses the dead body, boom, to like block the knife. <laughs> and the knife is kind of stuck in the dead body. So the Frenchman was trying to pull it out at first. But then he gets up and Frank stumbles and lands against a pillar and the Frenchman gets the knife again. He's getting ready to stab him. But then pow, he shot. Oh, and he falls <laughs> down and he's like, you can't stop it. And then we see it's Butcher. And he's standing there with his gun out. And he shot him nice go bletcher which i realized with your puppet reference earlier this is also Mm -hmm. kind of mirrors a scene from clyde bruckman and i only realized that because i was gonna make a joke how like wow bletcher was scully he probably would have shot frank instead of the bad guy (laughs) but it is like that scene where the puppet is about to stab Mulder, and then scully comes out of the elevator and shoots the bad guy so yeah yeah, the one time that scully doesn't shoot Mulder is (laughs) where scully actually shoots the bad guy she does more than once but not when Mulder's around but uh yeah no and this scene also reminded me of that i didn't make a note of it but it did remind me of like the clyde brookman because the way he's like he's keeping his face turned away and then Mm -hmm. he starts telling him how this is how it ends you can't stop it this is the prophecy kind of thing like we both know how it goes like yeah Yeah. very very clyde brookman vibes in there yeah so Frank arrives home and stands in the doorway and Catherine is there and she's glad to see him home. And he asks where Jordan is and Catherine says, oh, she's up in her room. So she's home. She's not in the hospital anymore. And she asks what he's doing. And he walks into the kitchen with something in his coat and he produces a puppy. <gasps> it's a very cute puppy, too. So upstairs, they have Jordan close her eyes and Frank puts the puppy on her bed and she's so excited. You know, she's like, oh, my gosh. And the puppy's like licking her and being super cute. And like, she's like, what's the puppy's name? And like, you know, Frank's like, you can name him. So like, you know, up to Jordan. And then downstairs, we see mail getting pushed through the mail slot. So Frank picks it up. And inside, he finds another envelope with no return address. Mm-hmm. And he starts to open it. But then Catherine comes down and she heads for the door. And like when he got home, she had mentioned like, oh, I'm glad you're here because, you know, I didn't know if you're going to make it in time for me to leave for my interview. So she has a job interview. So she's heading out and she asked him to wish her luck. And then she notices something's wrong because he's got like this weird look on his face. And she asks what it is. And he's like nothing. And he kisses her and he tells her to be careful. And then once she leaves, he opens the envelope and he pulls out the Polaroids and they show Catherine and Jordan in the car and in front of a taxi cab that reads Seattle. So he knows these photos are recent. And then it's over. Yep. Yep. And we get executive producer Chris Carter. And then, so they are doing a very, it's a little bit different style than the X-Files here, where it's a very like grungy looking typewriter font when we get like the screen tags and all that kind of stuff. And they're using that when they do like the 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 in episode credits as well. Like when we're actually like, you know, they run the credits under the the scene after the the theme and all that kind of stuff. And the executive producer, Chris Carter, is also in that grungy typeface. And then when they go to the regular credits, it's all just like in standard, like Sarah font kind of Times New Roman, whatever. And it's like, oh dude, like you like it it just totally breaks it, in my opinion, like style-wise. It just like Aww. I don't know. It seems like a lack of like let's just do the credits. I don't know. I would like carry it through, carry it through. I don't know, (laughs) but this is me personal preference. So yeah. Yeah. So I had mentioned, and I don't know if this ever appeared on a podcast. I know you and I had talked about it, but I had mentioned that I'd never seen millennium and didn't know what it was about, which Mm -hmm. was what I thought was true. 
And then I watched this episode and I totally remember watching this episode. So I think. <gasps> um, covered memories. I, I think probably what happened. And this is this is kind of a vague memory. Wait, that I had wait, wait. I I'm, get, I'm getting I'm getting a vision. You were sitting down on a Friday night at 9 p.m. to watch the X-Files <laughs> and Millennium came on instead. And so you watched it. And then, yeah, so we, I knew that Chris Carter had another show. And I'm sure, as someone who followed like TV Guide very closely, because back in those days, you had like a magazine that told you it was on TV. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure there was ads telling you. And there was an episode before this. And so I'm sure they ran like, stay tuned for the new series of Chris Carter Millennium. Yeah. So I'm sure we, we sat down to watch it because we wanted to see what Chris Carter's new show was about. And to be fair, we did this with Space Above and Beyond as well. I remember watching the first episode oh, of that. Morgan and Wong Stan. Okay. Well, you know, it was people who were on the X-Files. Let's see what this is about. We weren't that into it. But like this, a lot like of other people. <laughs> unfortunately. And so I think like, you know, with the sexy dancing and the brutal murder like i think mm. wasn't super into it at, at the time it wasn't really my thing like we wanted supernatural x-file stuff and i'm sure i thought the vision thing was kind of interesting but like i don't think my brothers and i were that into it and there was just better stuff on on friday night so i think we just kind of watched the pilot and we're like eh, let's watch something else and then we'll watch x-files on sunday i am more into this type of show now so I think it's kind of cool that I'm watching it now because, like, I think I will appreciate it more because I'm definitely more into, so like, ahead of its procedurals time. and, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> it was ahead of its time for me, personally. I feel like I just, at that point in my life, that wasn't what I wanted. I wanted, like, aliens and, you know, monsters crawling out of vents and stuff. So, yeah. But I did actually see this episode and I did, when I was watching it, I'm like, oh, I remember this. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I imagine that there probably were a few people who were just, you know, just like, I'm going to watch X-Files at nine o'clock tonight and turn on their TV. And honestly, if you turned on your TV and you didn't know there was an X-Files episode before and you missed all the ad stuff and you came in and the show started, like, you'd be like, oh, they're doing something different with the fonts on the screen. But like, there is nothing until the theme starts that you would really know that maybe it wasn't an X-Files episode. It totally could have been. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little, a little darker, that kind of thing. But like, it, it could have been, you could have been like, oh, they're doing something different with this episode. But I mean, it, it could have passed. You might not. Yeah. Know. But yeah, but I'm sure there was like an ad blitz and just they were talking. about. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure and, we knew because I know my brothers and, and, if you I, had a TV and our friends. I'm sure we were talking so. about it because we were very into like the X-Files. And so I'm sure this was mm. like a thing we were going to check out and see if we liked it. And I just think our consensus was probably like, no, let's move on. So. Yeah, I think we just watched the pilot and then started watching something else on Fridays and watched the yeah, X Files on like Sunday. Fourteen. I was about fourteen. I just started high school. Yeah, and I was yeah. I wanted my monsters and my vampires and my aliens. I didn't. I didn't care about serial killers at all. I was yeah. not really into that. So. So as Tori kind of mentioned a little bit, Millennium does take over the nine p.m. Friday night slot from mm-hmm. here on out. Yeah, and keeps it through its whole run. X-Files moves to Sundays and stays on Sundays all the way through its original run, all the way through season nine. Ooh. Yeah. X-Files was such a good way to start your weekend, and then you have to wait till the end of the weekend, and it's just like, oh, come on. Yeah, which is interesting, because when you think of X-Files, you think Friday nights, and yet 
X-Files ran on Sunday nights for far longer than it ran on Friday nights. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had always just had this memory of like X-Files Friday night, like in my head, even through high school, which obviously wasn't true. Like clearly, (laughs) clearly we were watching it on Sundays. (laughs) Yeah, because three seasons and three episodes on Fridays and then everything after that is Sunday, 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 Sunday. Yep. So Chris Carter wrote this episode, as we mentioned in the very beginning. He will actually write four episodes this season altogether. And then he'll co-write three episodes in season three with Frank Spotnitz. He will actually not direct any Millennium episodes, though. And then this episode was actually novelized by Elizabeth Hand and titled The Frenchman and was released in 1997. It was actually the first in a series of five novelizations that included Gihana by Louis Gannett, Force Majeure by Louis Gannett, The Wild and the Innocent by Elizabeth Massey, and then Weeds by Victor Croman. Huh. So. I have some X-Files novelizations, but they're like not episodes, I don't think. I think they're totally different stories. Yeah. They're actually, I found out because there were some original novels from the X-Files, but there were actually also a series of juvenile novels and then young adult novels that were all based on episodes. Okay. Pilot and host and all that kind of stuff. So. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I have the ones by um God, I can't remember his name now. Kevin something. But Kevin like, J. Anderson. One... Yeah, who also wrote a lot of Kev... the Star Wars stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Kevin yeah, J. Anderson. Wrote, like I, I think... have Ground Zero and a couple of Yeah, other I think there were like are... six original novels, and I think he wrote three of them, and then someone else wrote two of them, and then someone else wrote the other one. Gotcha. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna list all those two, but I'm like, this is a millennium. Not yeah. Well, I definitely have some of those, and I read those in high school because yeah. I was like, oh, X Files. Yay. <laughs> yeah. I did not know that they did novelizations of episodes. I knew that there were some original X Files novels. Yeah. I'm but sure I did not I saw know those, they did the novelizations. So, I was not yeah. into those because I don't need to read a novel of a TV show I've already seen. <laughs> yeah. So, much like this one, where the first episode was just pilot <laughs> yeah. of the X Files, right? The first book is actually called X Marks a Spot. Instead of being oh, called pilot. Oh, gotcha. Okay, I've seen that. And yeah. then they have a, and they have several of those. Yeah, but those are there. I'm not sure if they, as they went, they just kind of aged the series, figuring the readers would keep going because like the first few were listed under juvenile, and then the other ones are all listed under young adult, and then we get the original novels, and then so <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure, but yeah. So pin, 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 pin. Yay! The Millennium Group and him with the photos. Yes. So I do not know. I have not watched this whole series. I have only watched what we are talking about today. We're going to talk about two episodes today. Those of you who like behind the scenes action. And so I have a theory and we will see how it plays out. But here's my theory. The Millennium Group, even though it's all like law enforcement dudes, kind of has a little syndicate vibe a little bit, except for the like the good guys. You know, like we're all these law enforcement dudes who don't work in law enforcement anymore. We're kind of doing our own agenda thing, but we're solving crimes. Mm. So I have a theory that the photos were actually sent to Frank Black by someone in the Millennium Group. (gasps) You get him to retire from the FBI so they can recruit him for their group. And then now that he did such a good job, but then maybe he's feeling a little weird. They send him some more photos to keep him in. Right. He's got to stay in to make sure his family is safe. I don't know if that's true or not, but I could see where maybe that could be a thing. Yeah, no, that's a good theory. I like that. Yeah. This episode does a really nice thing that I like when they come back from commercials or even when they change scenes, the scene is desaturated and then the color comes in and then it it starts. I really like that. That's pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. So, and then just, I like the story. 
I think yeah. Good. Yeah, I did too. And it's definitely like, I could see why I did not like this when I was 14 and I was like, nope, <laughs> I'm out. But I also, I really do like it now. Like it's definitely more my kind of vibe. I definitely enjoy these kinds of shows. So I'm really excited to watch it. I think it's going to be really good. Or at least I have high hopes anyway. So yeah, we'll, well I, I, I think we're leading right nice transition into our ratings for this episode. Unless you have something else you want to talk about. I don't know. That was it. I mean, I do um, want to say that I think Lance Henriksen is really good in this. Yeah, he is. I think everybody does a good job, good. honestly. Yeah. I'll, I'll be honest. I'm not really a fan of Jordan, but I also am not a fan of children at that age in general, like in real life. <laughs> so... Okay. Yeah, I like babies and toddlers. I'm like, I'm like thing. Like, I am like the baby whisperer, the animal. Like babies <laughs> and animals, I'm all over that. They love me. I love them. When they start to get to a certain age, I'm like, get away from me. You irritate me. So yeah, she's at that age in this series. So yeah, it's like that's probably why. Yeah, I mean, I think she's a cute kid, but you know, I'm not. I'm not super invested. Like, I don't want her to get hurt. I hope her and her dog are fine. But like, I'm not like. <laughs> watching it for her story or anything you know yeah. yeah that's fair right well we usually have you do the ratings first so we do i mm, i forgot we were gonna rate these to be honest so i did not think mm. about this which is funny because we had talked about it and i was like yeah of course we're gonna rate them and yeah we have a spreadsheet so. <laughs> look at the spreadsheet tori just pay attention to what you're doing i yes, think this is a solid solid eight for me like it's a good Whoa, okay. pilot I feel like I get Frank's motivation. I get what he does. I do think he's a little psychic and I would love to, I know Chris Carter doesn't want him to be, but I feel like he's writing him as a psychic. Maybe as the episodes go on, it won't yeah. feel that way anymore. Yeah. He's um, very adamant apparently in interviews that he, Frank Black is not a psychic. Like it is all just like Will Graham action. And yet he wrote this episode and this episode is totally like, dude, he's totally, there's something going on. Yeah, there has so. to be because you can't. I mean, you can extrapolate a lot, but not from an, a body bag that's closed. Like you can't. Yeah. Just no. I mean, thing. he does say he's seen that mo before, but he don't. That's he true. Knows, he knows nothing about the crime because they've kept all that stuff away from the press. Right. All so he he's knows read is that one she was article. murdered. Yeah. 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 So anyway, I mean, I think that's a little wonky, but who knows? That'll probably get ironed out as they go. But I feel like it's a solid pilot. Like again, if I had watched this, you know, three or four years ago, I would have been like, "Cool, I'm into this show." Whereas, you know, obviously when I was a teenager, not so much. But yeah, eight. Okay. Start high. Well, I am going to go with a nine. Whoa. All I right. I think this is, I like this a lot. This is, I'm, I'm liking this a lot so far. We'll see. Nice. Yeah, we'll see if it stays up. Both of us have already watched the second episode. Because yeah. We're going to talk about it in just a few minutes. <laughs> you guys will hear about it. Well, actually, if you're on the Patreon, you'll hear about it actually in a couple days on Millennium Monday. So... And if you're not yeah. in the Patreon, then you're going to You hear should it. join Sorry. so you can hear it on Millennium yeah. Monday. Yeah. But based on the two episodes, it does seem to be doing something that I guess is maybe is one of my things about the X-Files. Like, I love the idea of the X-Files. But then the X-Files, I think, tries to do too much. It okay. tries to go in too many different directions. It does the paranormal thing, but it also does, like, the conspiracy thing. And it's got this and it's got that and it's got that. Where this really seems nice and focused. It is very and focused. I like it's that. like we've got like the, the X Files was and... focused on paranormal. Just we only do paranormal. That would be sweet. If they were focused purely on conspiracy, that would probably be sweet too. But the the splitting of the two things kind of 
I don't know. It just, I think it, there's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but I like this because it's very Titan focused. So I was kind of not sure that I was going to like it because I'm not big. Like I love Manhunter, but like Silence of the Lambs is kind of like to me. And then like, I've never seen any of the other ones like Red Dragon, the remake of Manhunter, because Manhunter and Red Dragon are both based on the book, Mm -hmm. Red Dragon. But then they remade it with Anthony Hopkins. Like it's the third one, I think they did Silence of the Lambs and they did Hannibal. And then obviously Red Dragon is the prequel to Silence of the Lambs. And then there's so, Mind Hunter on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen that. I feel like you would. I watched like one it. episode and it was so boring. Oh, okay. So See? boring. <laughs> I loved it, but yeah. So boring. Boring, 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 boring. Sorry, I did not anyway. think it was boring, but that's okay. Yeah. I mean, everyone write their own. Yeah. To each their so, own. I mean, I love Manhunter and it's that it's probably just that vibe, right? Like Manhunter, you know, crime story. It's got that it's got that late 80s, yeah. almost kind of Miami Vice vibe going to it, which makes sense because Michael Mann. So but yeah, anyway. Yeah, but this is very like it's procedural, but like with with a twist, which seems to be my TV sweet spot. Like You give me a procedural with a twist and I'm in like you've got a profiler or you've got a fake psychic or you've got a guy with severe OCD who's trying to get back on the force. Whatever it is, I'm in. I will watch. So, yeah, I just wasn't sure I was going to I wasn't going to like it. I think I carried away talking about all the other stuff because the whole like super serial killer stuff is not really my thing thing yeah. as much especially the visual representation of that like the whole like eyes and mouth sewn shut Ooh. yeah it's a little Ooh. yeah and then honestly that that little bit in the opening sequence i'm not even sure it's supposed to be a zombie but like it's someone just standing there and then like the light slightly changes and it kind of transitions to the person just like standing like on the hill like slumped over like they're a standing dead person oh my god it creeps me out so much but i also have a thing about zombies so yes yeah. yeah but that just that 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 was like just that alone i'm like whoa so i yeah. feel like the opening sequence could be just tweaked all together but yeah no and i'll talk about more of that in the yes, next i'm episode. sure you will i'm sure you will so yeah so I, ha- I have some things to say about it so yeah but no nine night on this one i'm like there, there nice. was there was some there was some little the little opening bit with the house kind of thing i was kind of like whoa <laughs> not a fan of jack nick doesn't care about character development not a fan of jack. <laughs> he doesn't like well, jack. it's not even it's not even character development it's exposition <laughs> right it's exposition <laughs> is what it is so I'm, it is it's why are you here frank why yeah, are you, you do, here you do clunky <laughs> exposition and you are gonna yeah i'm not gonna like you so um and chris carter does clunky exposition let's be honest so he definitely can yeah yeah but no, but otherwise, yeah, nine. That's why it's not a 10, because clunky exposition. So <laughs> I know I like it a lot. So hopefully, yay. Awesome. Well, we're off to a solid start with Millennium, then. I'm excited to watch the yeah. rest of it. Yeah. I mean, maybe all pilots will be nine. Who knows? I mean, ideally, right? And then, maybe right. I mean, yeah. You want your pilot to be good because you want people to keep watching yeah. and you want the network to pick it up and all that stuff so yeah although i guess you actually gave this one an eight so we don't match the x-files because we both we, gave x-files pilot and yeah i don't think it's so. as good as the x-files pilot but it's good okay. fine all right <laughs> sorry all right well that's the first episode of millennium in the bag yay yay i want to rewatch is hosted by tori and nick and recorded in collaboration with Black Cat and Orange Tuxedo Studios. Episode production design and editing is by Lazy End Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz, and the truth is what we make of it by The Agrarians. 
Our premium feed is where you can find all of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes covering television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like these bonus episodes, tell a friend about our Patreon page. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us next time as we start Millennium Mondays with episode two, Gehana. And try to figure out if, if the, the truth, truth is, is still, still out there. there. looks up at him and Frank looks at him and then the dude just like <gasps> bolts for it so Frank runs after him and they run down a forest path and through the trees chase time mm-hmm.